to uh, read God's word, and we're going to read uh, from the book of Isaiah. And so we're starting in uh, chapter 9 at verse 8 and going all the way through uh, to chapter 10, verse 27. So we start on page 694 uh, in the church Bibles. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. But the Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes against them and has spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. But the people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. So the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in a single day. The elders and dignitaries are the head. The prophets who teach lies are the tail. Those who guide this people mislead them. And those who are guided are led astray. Therefore, the Lord will take no pleasure in the young men, nor will he pity the fatherless and widows. For everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks folly. Yet... For all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upwards in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. They will not spare one another. On the right, they will devour but still be hungry. On the left they will eat, but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of their own offspring. Manasseh will feed on Ephraim, and Ephraim on Manasseh. Together they will turn against Judah. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? (coughs) To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. Yet for all this... His anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Are not my commanders all kings, he says? 
Has not Calno fared like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad and Syria like Damascus? As my hand sees the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images far excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, by my, the strength of my hand, I have done this. And by my wisdom, because I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasure. Like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reaches for the wealth of the nations. As people gather abandoned eggs, so I gathered all the countries. Not one flapped a wing. Not one opened its mouth to chirp. Does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it? Or the saw boast against the one who uses it? As if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up, or a club brandish the one who is not wood. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will send a wasting disease upon his sturdy warriors. Under his pomp a fire will be kindled like a blazing flame. The light of Israel will become a fire, their holy one a flame. In a single day it will burn and consume his thorns and briars, the splendour of his forests and fertile fields it will completely destroy as when one who is ill wastes away. And the remaining trees of his forests will be so few that a child could write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people be like the sand by the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteous. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, will carry out the destruction decreed upon the whole land. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Almighty, says. My people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians who will beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you as Egypt did. Very soon my anger against you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. The Lord Almighty will lash them with a whip as when he struck down Midian at the rock of Oreb. He will raise his staff over the waters as he did in Egypt. In that day, their burden will be lifted from your shoulders, their yoke from your neck. The yoke will be broken because you have grown so fat. Thank you. Please take a seat. We're carrying on in our series in Isaiah, where we've been seeing that God is great and that God is good. God is great, high and lifted up, and God is good a God of truth and righteousness. Uh, we've got a different headline for today in a bit more detail from the reading we've had. And it's this. Uh, God 
is a God of judgment and mercy. God is a God of judgment and mercy. And therefore, your move. Rebel or return. This morning is a matter of life and death. Actually, no, that's wrong. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. That means there is nothing more important that we could think about than this. And so I am delighted that you are here. Bit of geography, just to get us going. Um, this is a very bright map, but it's the uh, one I could find that would show up the best. Um, three arrows to show you, just of the layout of the land uh, that Isaiah is talking about. Uh, down there on the, uh, the bottom, we have the southern kingdom. Uh, that's the kingdom of Judah with its capital city, Jerusalem. That's the southern kingdom uh, of God's people, uh, which was once one big nation, but it's split in two. There's the southern kingdom. Then there's the northern kingdom, um, Israel, as it's called, uh, and Samaria as its capital city. Now, it's a bit confusing sometimes because Israel was also the name for the whole uh, nation before it broke in two. But Israel, northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, and then a somewhat unnecessary arrow for you uh, pointing at that big thing there. What is it? Well, if you were here or you caught up online uh, to the sermon in uh, Isaiah chapter 5, we heard a song of a vineyard. And at the end of that passage, God whistles for a, a fearsome army who are going to come and take the people into exile. But we are not told who they are. Uh, but then this army is actually named in chapter 7 and chapter 8, and you can look at that in your own time, named as Assyria. And you can tell uh, Assyria is bigger. Which country would you want to be on your team? Which country would you not want to be? Assyria grew into a massive superpower during Isaiah's lifetime, 740 to 700 BC. And Isaiah is writing to these kingdoms down here, talking about the kingdom that's going to come down and take them into exile. So that's what's happening uh, in terms of geography. I want to now look at the, uh, kind of the geography of the passage that we have in front of us, and it'd be great if you have that open. I know there's lots of text here. Um, if you're not used to looking at big chunks of the Bible, uh, that's totally fine. Don't feel like you have to take it all in. Um, what, my job is to try and help you just see a bit more than uh, you maybe saw before. Here's a layout of the land. Uh, we've got three main sections. First section, uh, 9.8 to 10.4. And it's about God's hand still being upraised. You will have heard it as it was read, verse 12, verse 17, verse 21, and verse 4 of chapter 10. We hear the same words. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. And that refrain um, finishes a picture. And there are four pictures that we'll go through in turn. Those four pictures make up that first section. And then the second section um, is about Assyria, God's rod of judgment, who themselves will be judged. And then the third section is about Israel, the people of God, the remnant, and they return. They are restored. We're going to go through these sections. Uh, we'll go um, quite briskly, particularly through the second two. Uh, but just so you know, that's, um, that's where we're heading. Uh, that's the passage that we've had read out. Okay, just a reminder of the headline before we dive into the details. God is a God of judgment and mercy. And so this morning, it's your move. Your move. Are you going to rebel? Or are you going to return? First section. Let's go through each of these four pictures. And we're going to see Israel's sin and God's judgment. And the first section then, 
Um, 8 to 12. What is the sin? It's pride. Pride at their resilience. Do you see that verse 9? They say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. What they're saying there is, yeah, bricks, they fell down. But not only will we replace, not only will we recover, but we'll do even better. Dressed stone, artisan, crafted. Fig trees have gone. They were rubbish. Wait till you see these cedars that we put in their place. Israel's sin was pride, self-resilience, self-reliance. They thought they were invincible. You hit us, we'll come back stronger. If judgment comes, we can withstand it. We are stronger than God. That was their sin. And God's response comes in verse 12. Actually, in verse 11. God has strengthened their foes against them and spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west... They've come and devoured Israel with open mouth. It's a very vivid image. Imagine an animal eating, biting, ripping flesh. That's what came to God's people. Horrible judgment. And we might cry out, the people might have cried out like Isaiah did last week. How long, Lord? How long will this finish? And what's the answer that comes? His anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He has struck them once, and he lifts it to strike again. On to the second picture. Verse 13. Unrepentance. God has disciplined them. God has shown them they have done wrong. He has spoken to them. He has acted against them. Verse 13. The people have not returned to him who struck them. They haven't sought the Lord. They haven't turned back to the one who has shown he's more powerful than them, than them. And so, verse 14, here's the response of God. He will cut off from Israel both head and tail. Heads and tails. That's the way to win the coin toss, isn't it? Heads and tails. And that's what God does here. He explains what the heads and the tails are. Verse 15, the, the elders and dignitaries, the civic national leaders, they're the head. And then the prophets, the spiritual leaders who teach lies. They are the tail. From head to tail. We get that picture, don't we? The whole thing, the whole of the people. Head to tail. Unrepentant, not turning back to God. And you see in verse 16 what happens. They're trying to guide the people. They say, come this way, come this way into judgment. And the people who follow, they're misled. Verse 17, even more striking maybe than what's come before. The Lord will take no pleasure in the young men, those who the society thought were the best and the brightest and the strongest. God won't notice anything good about them. And then even more challenging I found, verse 17, the second bit, nor will he pity the fatherless and the widows. God wouldn't even take pity on those who are most pitiable. And we might say, how can that be? Because before he did. But he explains it. For everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks folly. Even the oppressed do not turn out back to God. Even those who are, have nowhere else to turn still don't go back to him. I can manage myself. If only I had this. If only I had this lucky break. If only society was on my side, I would rise up again. 
they do not turn to God. The whole of the country. And we might cry out, how long, Lord? And the answer comes, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. It's going to fall again. And that's in the third picture. Wickedness. Verse 18, wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns, the low-lying shrubs, and it sets forest thickets ablaze. The smallest bit to the biggest bit, the least impressive to the most impressive, are burned up by wickedness. Do you see that? It's, it's the pride of the people and their misleading that burns the nation. It spreads. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If your leaders are leading you the wrong way, is your country going to end up in a good place? No. Wickedness spreads like fire. And God's response is, in some ways, to do nothing. Verse 19, by the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched. Do you see that? He's just going to say, okay, you're going this way into wickedness. You're going this way into self-devouring and corruption. I'm not going to intervene. I'm going to let that happen. It's a response in kind. God lets the people do what they want, basically. God's judgment says, okay, you've chosen. And the results of that, verse 20, they will devour but still be hungry. No one's going to be satisfied. They're going to eat each other. Verse 21, Manasseh will feed on Ephraim, one tribe on another, and together they will turn against Judah, the southern kingdom. If you've been following at all, the, the warring factions in Sudan... Terrible. People are killing each other within a country. Thousands dead, caught in the crossfire. Many, many more injured, assaulted, traumatized. As a country falls apart, how awful for that country. That is what happened here. And we cry out, how long, Lord? And God's answer? His anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. On to the fourth picture, the beginning of chapter 10. Oppressive lawmaking. Verse 1, woe to those who make unjust laws. Verse 2, who deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed. They prey on the widows and they rob the fatherless. They profit from those who have so little, they steal. A terrible thing to abuse your power like that. And God's response? He will crush them. Verse 3. There will be a day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar. Assyria is going to come and God says, whom, to whom will you run for help? You leaders? Where will you, where will you leave your riches? You put them in the bank, but the bank's going to be overrun. You're going to put them under your mattress, but that's going to be ripped open. You have nowhere to put all the stuff you've accumulated. You can't take it with you. And nothing will remain, verse 4, but to cringe, to cringe among the captives, to cower in fear if you have not already been killed. How long, Lord? His anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Four pictures. Do you get the rhythm of this? It's unflinching, it's horrible. 
It's, it's almost unwatchable, unreadable, isn't it? There are not many people here thinking tonight, oh, I must read the children the Bible story tonight. Let's crack open Isaiah 9. Are we really? It's not the sort of stuff we want to read. It's distressing. Sin, judgment, more judgment to come. 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 God's people were condemned. Now we might say that was then and this is now. We're in Harpenden, not in Israel or in Judah. But of course, the Bible asks us some pretty searching questions as we read it. Is the spirit of the sin there alive and well here today? Are we better than Israel and therefore kind of we can walk with our heads held high before God? Or do we deserve judgment? What was the first picture? Pride. Pride and a strength to rebuild. That runs through the streak of many people's attitudes, doesn't it? In our country. It's all right, we've got tech. It's all right, we've got an education system or a healthcare system or climate activism. Now, by the way, those things can be good things. Christians can be involved in them. Great. But if we say, of these things, they're the saviour. We can build something that will protect us. We can bounce back. Fig trees, cedars. We don't need God. We don't need to rely on him. We shouldn't try. Let's trust ourselves. We are a proud country. Proud when we do well, when we pat ourselves on the back. And proud when we don't do well, when we think we should do better. In neither side do we turn to God. What about unrepentance? Quite hard to find real apologies these days, isn't it? And more spiritually than that, when was the last time in this country a leader said, let's go to God? Wouldn't that be amazing if a leader stood up, stood up and he or she said, God is holy and we need to say sorry. Let's have a day of prayer. Wouldn't that be an incredible country to be in that turned back to God? But that's not what we have. The head. Leaders, whether on a national level or a more local level, people not praying your will be done. We've kind of got used to that, haven't we? And many people have. We don't trust authority because we have a sense that they're out for themselves, not for the people. And then what about the tail, the spiritual leaders who teach lies? Well, sadly, there are many spiritual leaders whose teaching about God boils down to this. God is a big pair of thumbs up. And he, and he literally can't wait to run up to you and say, good job for everything you're doing and everything you're thinking. Carry on. Everything's all right. No judgment. But we see Isaiah as a prophet of the living God. Said very different. God is good. God is great. And maybe more subtle than that, uh, people might say, faith, look, faith is a private matter, okay? Yeah, of course. Of course, believe. Of course, pray. But do it in your own home. Don't bring it into politics. Let's rise above that. Don't bring it into local conversations. Head and tail corrupting our society. What about the next one? Self, the burning, the wickedness. And the division, falling out with each other. 
Do you remember the Brexit referendum? Were some of us surprised when we realized quite how divided our country was? And that's just on one question. I'm not saying whether it was right or wrong, just one question, kind of split in half. How often when someone suggests one idea, there'll be opposition, people complaining if we go that way. And if we go this way, people complaining against that. That's kind of how it works these days, isn't it? Uh, I'm on a local social media platform, just, um, uh, just uh, out of interest, really, to get to know the town better. And I know it's kind of a, sometimes a certain kind of person who posts on those things. But there was a, there was a post about um, uh, a cyclist who'd been using a, a shared pedestrian cycle path. And um, they'd had an encounter with a pedestrian, and they were just um, saying what happened. And what interested me was the, the amount of responses it got, a lot of responses. And... People were saying, oh, yeah, pedestrians. And some people were saying, oh, council, not enough signposting. And other people were saying, oh, cyclists. They hog the road and then they hog the pavement. The takeaway is not, should we cycle or... The takeaway is, we've only got one, one road together. One way. How do we share it? <laughs> not happily. Not happily. And that spirit lives in all of us. It's not out there, it's here. This is our community. Maybe you felt that as I said that. Yeah, that's right. Those cyclists slowing down the car. We feel these things. And then what about the fourth picture, oppressive lawmaking? <laughs> this is a bit controversial, maybe. Uh, should there be politics in sermons? don't know what you'd uh, say to that. Now, I just want to say, there's a danger of having politics in sermons, right? Because specifics can be quite slippery. And it's easy for me to be really uninformed about something and just throw it out. And you're sitting there way more informed than me and say, actually, Gareth, that's not really what's going on. Uh, not only that, I might have a personal preference. But I, I, like, I like a particular party, let's say. And I, I want them, but I'll just look through the Bible for one thing that agrees with what they do. And then say, yeah, you guys, these, these people are good because look at Ezra verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. Or something like, you know, there's a danger there. But what is preaching? Probably not a question you ask very often. What is preaching? It is bringing God's word to God's people, proclaiming the truth. And so the question, should politics be in sermons, kind of comes under a more basic question. Are politics in the Bible? Is the Bible political? Chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who make unjust laws. Yes. Who's making laws? You? No, it's a political thing. Caveats aside, and we should have some caveats, it is possible that one reason we don't like politics in sermons is because we know the Bible treads very heavily on our political toes. It's possible, isn't it? Isn't that possible? We were thinking last week about how God disagrees with us on certain things. If a government is not aiming to follow God's will, then there are going to be many times when it doesn't do God's will. It doesn't follow the law of God. And so we can have eyes open to see where in our society are there laws that crush people. I would suggest we don't have to look too far. And if we see that, when we see that, what do we hope our heart is like if we are Christians? Whose heart do we want to have for those people? Our Father's heart. Our Father's heart. And there are lots of things we can do. We can step towards those people if they're close to us and help them directly. Or we could write to those who are making the decisions. Or we can sign a petition. Not because we think, oh, that's the core of the gospel message. But 
because we want to follow our God's will for his world. Enough said on that. Happy to chat after. But as we think about those four pictures and our country, can we see that like Israel, we have sinned? Like Israel, we deserve judgment. And so we must respond to this message. It is a word to us, even though this was not now and then, and now and here. We'll look into the response in a moment in the third section. I'm mindful of time, so we are going to uh, really pick up the pace here. As we go into the second uh, section in Assyria, looking at Assyria, verses 5 to 19. Just to pick out a few things about Assyria. Uh, firstly, Assyria is an agent of God's judgment. Do you see that? In verse 5, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. The Assyrian, this frightening superpower, is a, a rod in God's hand. Verse 6, I send him, I dispatch him against a people who anger me. So it wasn't bad luck. Israel didn't say, ah, oh, I guess sometimes you know, these things happen. No, God, hand upraised with Assyria, striking his own people. But verse 5 starts with the word, woe. Distress to the Assyrian. Why? He's doing what God wants, isn't he? Well, God has sent him. But he is sinful himself, the king of Assyria. He is bent on destruction for destruction's sake. Verse 7, his purpose is to destroy. And verse 8, do you hear his pride? Maybe you heard it as he was read. Are oh, not all my commanders kings? And if all his commanders are kings... Who does that make him? And worst of all, verse 11, what does he call God? Verse 11, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her Lord? Has I dealt with Samaria and her God? No. He thinks God is just like the other made-up gods, like the bits of wood and metal that are worshipped. Assyria does not recognize God. I love the, the uh, question in verse 15. Does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it? I mean, maybe you'd like that if you're chopping wood, right? If the axe just did the job for you. But no, you, you're the one holding the axe. God is the one holding Assyria. And yet Assyria boasts, look at what I'm doing. And so God rebukes him. Verse 12, I will punish the king of Assyria. And if we had a bit more time, we could look at the judgment that comes from God reducing the proud forest of Assyria to so few that even a child could count the trees. Let us just note, really importantly, that God is sovereign even over evil powers. Even over the world's superpowers, God is in charge. He sends and wields Assyria in judgment, and then he judges Assyria. Assyria cannot be stronger than him. God controls the power and the reach and the destiny of even the most frightening superpower that has ever been. We move on to the third section the remnant returning. And again, just a few things to note. In that day, there is going to be a day. It's there again in verse 27. In that day, there's going to be a time when all this is done. When the hand is no longer upraised. Verse 20, survivors. God's people are not wiped out. Even though judgment is really strong, God's people are not wiped out. And actually, they rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, still in verse 20. And they return to the land, verse 21. And God says, verse 24, 
don't be afraid of the Assyrians. There's lots to be afraid of the Assyrians, and we'll think about that in future weeks. The Assyrians were bloodthirsty and awful, and God somehow says, don't be afraid, because I wield them, and I'm going to put them down. In fact, I'm going to judge them. They will not have the final say. And there is resolution. See verse 25? Welcome words. My anger against you will end. His anger was not turned away and not turned away and not turned away, but very soon it will end. The hand is lowered. The people are not destroyed. Right, we've covered lots. A couple of observations. A couple of observations as we we survey that and look back. Two things we might get wrong about God's anger. Maybe you've felt, uh, heard someone say this, or maybe you've even said it yourself. God will forgive me. That's his job. Yeah? You heard that? Isaiah says, no. That's not his job. This is his job. To judge. To judge evil. That's God's job. If you want to count on God, you can count on God. But count on what God is actually like, not what you hope he is. His job is to judge. We are due punishment, not forgiveness. And the second thing linked to this, there's not lots of time for this, but let me just flag it because it is important, particularly if you're new to church. Some people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, yeah, he's really angry, but the New Testament's quite a nice one. Uh, Just some words from Jesus up on the screen. Jesus, the most loving man who ever lived. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he's talking about himself, Uh, He will separate the people one from another. And then at the bottom, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. The New Testament is not nice. It's true and good, but it is not nice. God is always holy. He must judge evil. So let's not get those two things wrong. God won't forgive because it's his job. He will judge. And Jesus does the will of God as God's son. And so that brings us back to our headline. God is a God of judgment and mercy. Have we seen that this morning? Yes, in, in the first section, judgment, judgment, judgment. In the second section, judgment. In the third section, mercy. And so it's your move. Do you continue to live away from him? Do you rebel Or do you return? Because the amazing thing is, the personal God, the God who loves us, he has made it your move. Isn't that incredible? Like he let the people wander into judgment, he's letting us come to him for mercy. He's made it your move. The most famous verse in the Bible probably, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus, that's you this morning, if you believe in Jesus, you will not perish. You'll have eternal life. It is your move. Because God has chosen for it to be. (laughs) Uh, Maybe you're a brand newcomer to Christchurch and you're thinking, what have I walked in on today? (laughs) Maybe the welcome on the door was quite smiley, but it's kind of taken a turn for the worse right now. I can understand that. Uh, Here at Christ Church, we want to be about three things. Loving Christ, 
loving his church, and loving Harpenden. And that first circle, loving Christ, to love someone, you have to get to know them. Don't you? You don't love a figment of your imagination. The relationship's going to end in disaster if you do that. You have to know what the person is like. We don't sit in this room and think, oh, what do you imagine God to be like? And let's jot a few things down on a bit of paper. And then that's our God. No, we read God's word. Lord, what are you like? Here Isaiah gives us a mind-expanding view of the God who is great and the God who is good. A God of judgment and justice, but also a God of mercy. And actually, that's how we want God to be. Don't you hate evil? Don't you want to see it finish? Don't you hate it when people crush those you love, or even you? Then you want God to be a God of judgment. And don't you also want reconciliation? Don't you want the country brought back together? Don't you want relationships restored? Then you want God to be a God of mercy. Still talking to you if you're a newcomer, or if you don't follow Jesus yet. Maybe you've been coming to this church for quite a few years, and you still don't follow Jesus. That's okay. It's okay you've kept coming. In fact, we're delighted you have. But please, can you see, judgment is coming. God has promised it. We aren't to fear superpowers in the world, frightening though they may be, but we are to fear God. Because God's hand will be upraised when Christ returns, and his anger will not be turned away. So right now, why are you here this morning? Why did God bring you here? So you could hear this message. (laughs) So you might have a chance to return. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I want to do that. I'm just going to put up a prayer on the screen. I'll give you a moment to read it. It's not very long. Just a prayer of repentance and faith of return. And then I'm going to pray it. And if you want to pray it along in the quiet of your heart, please do so. But let me just give you a moment to look at it. I'm going to pray it now, and if anyone wants to, in the quiet of their heart, pray it along, please do. Dear Lord, you are holy, and I am not. I have rebelled from you and your laws, so I am deserving of judgment. Thank you that you sent Jesus to take the punishment for me. I turn and trust in him as my Lord and Savior. Amen. What about for those of us who have prayed this prayer before? Maybe you've just prayed it now. If you have, please come and tell me or tell a Christian friend. But for the rest of us, many of us who have prayed that sort of prayer a while ago, what are we left with in this chapter? Love Christ, he first loved us. This is what we've been saved from. The hand that was upraised was for you. And Jesus stepped in and he took it. In Christ, you are safe from this. You will never face this judgment. Isn't that amazing? Love church. Let us sing songs of joy together. As we have communion and share that together, it's a celebration. This is what we were destined for, and Jesus came by his body and his blood given for us. We are free. We are safe. And as we think about loving Harpenden, we want them to know. We want them to know the message. We've heard about the men's breakfast. We've got Roots of Jazz. There's church on Sunday. Pray for our friends, our neighbours, our colleagues. 
Maybe you want to think, how will I actually invite the person? Don't know if they like jazz. What am I going to say? Oh, I know he likes breakfast. That's a good way in. Let's pray in our small groups. Can I encourage us this week to pray for people by name? Because we love them and we want to love them more. And most of all, we want them to know the love of God. The God of judgment, but also of mercy. A moment of quiet, uh, and then Ian will lead us in communion. A moment of quiet for you guys just to reflect and respond. And then over to Ian. Ian.